You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com So the question is, what does your search engine know about you? Does it know more about you and your life and your thoughts and your personal details than your best friend, your family? Does it know more about you than anyone in your life? Does it know more about you than you do about yourself? That is a distinct possibility, my friends, because we are living in the age of the Internet where more and more and more of our lives are becoming enmeshed in the grid and on the net. And as that happens, we start to lose that thing that we have taken very much for granted for a very long time, the idea that privacy is at the very least possible. And it is not, I think, too much to uh, to state, to go out on a limb, to state that the idea of privacy itself is becoming something of a pipe dream, as unfortunately, more and more of our lives are being put on the net, and it becomes more and more difficult to escape that net, which is designed very much to catch us all. But by all means, don't take my word for it. Just ask Mark Zuckerberg. Well, I mean, it is interesting looking back, right? Because, I mean, when I... When we got started just in my, in my dorm room at Harvard, um, you know, the, the question that a lot of people asked was, why would I want to put any information on the Internet at all? Like, why would I want to have a website? Um, and then, you know, in, in the last five or six years, you know, blogging has taken off in a huge way and just all these different services that have people sharing more information. Um, and people have really gotten comfortable not only sharing more information and different kinds, but more openly and with more people. And that social norm is just something that's evolved over time. Um, and we view it as our role in, in, the, in the system to constantly be kind of innovating and, and um, updating what our system is to reflect what the current social norms are. So I mean, a lot of companies would be trapped by the conventions and their legacy of the systems that they built. Um, doing a privacy change for 350 million users yeah. is, is a really, you know, it's, it's not, a, Pain, not the type painful, of thing yeah. that a lot of companies would do. Yeah. You know, um, but, but I think that that's just, we view that as a really important thing to always kind of keep a beginner's mind and think, you know, what would we do if we were starting the, the company now and starting the site now? And um, we decided that these would be the social norms now, and we, we just went for it. The social norms, they are a changing, friends, as we live in this uh, time of a great transition. In fact, the age of transitions, as uh, not only our old uh, good friend Newt Gingrich uh, wrote about, but of course, as Aaron Franz used for the title of his documentary, which uh, people who haven't heard of Aaron Franz, please go back in the archives. I've interviewed him several times now. I suggest you check out his website, theageoftransitions.com, as he talks about some of these issues. But certainly we are being transitioned off of a society that at least found the idea of privacy to be worthy of uh, consideration. But in this day and age, as Zuckerberg points out, and I fear that he is actually correct, we're being led into an age where privacy is not even an expectation anymore. And as he said when he started Facebook, book back in his college dorm room several years ago, people would ask him, why would people give you so much details about their personal lives? Why would they tell you about all, who their friends are and what they're doing and all of this information? 
And uh, he didn't really have an answer for it at the time. But uh, because of the power of Facebook, which has been heavily promoted by the powers that shouldn't be and given venture capital funding by some very shady characters, it has become a cultural force which has changed those social norms that Zuckerberg was talking about. So now it is perfectly seen as perfectly acceptable, perfectly normal even, to give everyone your personal private details about your life, who you are, where you are, who you associate with, what you're thinking, what you're doing, where you're going on a daily basis, etc., etc. And as we become further and further enmeshed in this net, the idea of becoming anonymous or staying private is almost unthinkable. So tonight we're going to be delving into this question, is anonymity even possible on the net? And if so, how do we achieve it? Well, it's a pretty big task to uh, to answer those questions, but we'll try our best tonight here on Corbett Report Radio. Stay right there. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. Thank you for tuning in tonight. And tonight we are talking about anonymous, anonymity, privacy. Are these things of the past? Are they possible online? If so, how? If not, why not? These are the questions we want to be tackling tonight, and they are big questions to tackle. So let's roll up our sleeves and get into some of the nitty-gritty of the details of this. And I think at the very least we should at the outset note some of the irony that one of the big political movements of our day and age is the anonymous movement, which so far has amounted to a lot of DDoS attacks on websites, which for anyone who doesn't know the details is not a particularly skilled attack. Uh, It's led to a lot of shady release of documents and hookups with WikiLeaks and other such openly Soros-funded, etc. organizations. It's uh, accomplished, well, I guess, uh, quite a big protest movement against Scientology, so... You know, there are some benefits, I guess, to this movement, but it's interesting that this has become one of the big memes of our day and age when specifically anonymity on the internet seems to be nothing more than a pipe dream. So why do I say that? Why is this even a question? Surely you can remain anonymous online. You just have to maybe avoid some of the the big websites and the big companies, but you can remain anonymous. Of course, you just don't type your name or your, your personal details into a website and how will they know anything about you? Well, some indications of that come from some stories that have come out over the years, and let's take a look at some of them, because they do start to add up to a bigger picture that complicates the idea that we will ever achieve online privacy. So let's take a look. For example, just in the past couple of weeks, we've had some pretty big stories that put some of the pieces of the puzzle together on something that's been a bit of a question for the last couple of years. You might be able to cast your mind back to uh, 2011, May of 2011, when Microsoft purchased Skype for $8.5 billion. That's $8.5 billion with a B, which is a staggering sum of money to pay for any company, let alone a company like Skype that I'm sure is profitable, but uh, not to the tune of $8.5 billion, surely. So what was this all about? Why Why was Microsoft so desperate to get Skype and to incorporate it into its own corporate structure? Well, some indications of that have come out recently. We had this story from the 23rd of July, 2012 on RT.com. Is Microsoft eavesdropping through Skype for the feds? Question mark. Are your Skype calls safe from the eyes and ears of snooping feds? 
Microsoft has filed a patent to allow eavesdropping over Skype and other VoIP platforms, but the Silicon Valley giants won't say whether or not they are already implementing it. Microsoft acquired the popular voice over IP program Skype in May 2011 for an astounding $8.5 billion, but the news between the world but the news between the world's most popular VoIP service and the legendary Silicon Valley entity doesn't end just there. Barely a year later, Microsoft was awarded a patent last month that allows them to roll out undetectable eavesdropping tools to target the communications of its customers without them ever knowing. Well, that's a, that's a pretty significant uh, peak behind uh, peak under the kimono right there, and I think that goes to show that uh, there is and has been for some time some intelligence agency uh, interest in Skype and trying to get a hold of these well pesky uh, pesky Skype like voice over internet protocol uh, communications that were a little bit too difficult for the NSA to to be handling at a certain point because they were so decentralized and difficult to trace. And so, for example, back in 2009, we had this story on, that was covered by the register.co.uk, NSA offering billions for Skype eavesdrop solution. And it says, uh, this is from the Counter-Terror Expo that was being held in 2009 in London. News of a possible viable business model for P2P VoIP network Skype emerged today at the Counter-Terror Expo in London. An industry source disclosed that America's super-secret national security agency, the NSA, is offering billions to any firm which can offer reliable eavesdropping on Skype IM and voice traffic. The Skype... the SpyBiz exec, sorry, who preferred to remain anonymous, oh, the irony, confirmed that Skype continues to be a major problem for government licensing agencies, spooks, and police. This was already thought to be the case, following requests from German authorities for special intercept bugging powers to help them deal with Skype-loving malefactors. Britain's GCHQ has also stated that it has severe problems intercepting VoIP and internet communication in general. Well, that might be a bit of, uh, oh, don't throw me in the briar patch. I'm, I'm sure that uh, it was not quite as difficult to track as, uh, as the NSA and others were letting on. But at any rate, the fact that they were openly, uh, well, not openly, but, uh, but they were confirmed to be offering billions of dollars to any company that could basically hand them Skype's head on a plate. And along comes Microsoft spending $8.5 billion on a company that no one believed was valued at $8.5 billion. And then less than a year later, rolls out the patents for what? Oh, yes, the ability to eavesdrop on all Skype communications. So is there a way to connect those dots? I'd say there is. And uh, and although RT had it as a question mark in their title, is Microsoft eavesdropping through Skype for the feds? Well, uh, the Washington Post came out two days after that RT article with a more definitive statement, Skype makes chats and user data more available to police. Quote, Skype, the online phone service long favored by political dissidents, criminals, and others eager to communicate beyond the reach of governments, has expanded its cooperation with law enforcement authorities to make online chats and other user information available to police, said industry and government officials familiar with the changes. Surveillance of the audio and video remains impractical, even when courts issue warrants, say industry officials with direct knowledge of the matter. But that barrier could eventually vanish as Skype becomes one of the world's most popular forms of telecommunication. 
Okay, well, again, the links for these articles will be in the show notes so you can continue reading, but I think the point has been established. Microsoft, of course, more than happy to communicate and and to work hand-in-glove with the NSA and the FBI and whoever else is requesting their data. And once again, we don't have to speculate about that or just say, well, you know, Bill Gates, and just leave it at that. We can, again, go back into the record for some of the details that have been released about Microsoft and the way they collude with the government. So, for example, we had uh, from Geekosystem, System.com back in 2010, site leaks Microsoft online surveillance guide and Microsoft demands takedown under copyright law. And that goes into the story of Cryptome.org, run by our favorite whistleblower, John Young, who uh, was uh, leaking some guides, not only of Microsoft, but other companies as well, of how they comply with uh, uh, criminal investigations for various agencies and basically the the guide that they have for what information they'll release and basically what information those agencies should request. So if you're an FBI agent who's too dumb to figure out what information you need, just take a look at this handy-dandy Microsoft guide and it'll tell you what information they have and how to request it. So uh, And you can go and look at that. It's still online. Microsoft did manage to take down Cryptome for a, a week or two, but it got back online and has been up thankfully ever since. So people who don't know about Cryptome.org, that's because they don't want you to know about Cryptome. They want you to know about WikiLeaks, but they don't want you to know about some of these other sites that are not as controlled uh, opposition as WikiLeaks self-evidently is. And they're they're publishing things like this Microsoft Compliance Guide, which uh, Microsoft got their, uh, their knickers in a twist about, but it has been uh, kept up for years now, and you can go and download that document and take a look at how Microsoft openly colludes with government and uh, will bend over backwards for their investigations. And of course, it's not just Microsoft. It is every major internet player out there, including, of course, the biggest one of them all, Google. And uh, I'm sure this needs no elaboration for most of you out there, but for those of you who aren't familiar with this, we can turn, for example, to the Washington Post from February 2010, Google to enlist NSA to help it ward off cyber attacks. And this came out uh, during some uh, interesting uh, times when uh, the NSA was openly asked to collude with Google over some uh, some cyber attacks that Google was having on their Chinese servers, etc. And it became a partnership, the details of which we can't know anything about, because, uh, yes, the NSA is part of a federal agency and, and thus is supposedly accountable to the taxpayers that fund its existence, but we all know better, and we know that they get to hide under the rubric of national security. So just pull that curtain, and anything can go on behind those curtains, and you're not allowed to know. So uh, even two years later, RT.com had this article from 2012, NSA refuses to disclose its links with Google. Wondering if the U.S. government's shadowy security agents are working behind the scenes with the biggest entity on the internet? Don't hold your breath waiting. One one advocacy group has to take Uncle Sam to court for an answer. The Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC, is suing the United States National Security Agency to find out the truth behind any partnership between the NSA and Google, the Silicon Valley giants behind the web's most popular search engine, and a laundry list of other online applications and services. EPIC has been asking for information on an alleged alliance since 2010, but with the NSA refusing to submit to Freedom of Information Act requests, the U.S. District Court of Appeals will hear arguments later this month that the advocacy group will hopes will mean that they will soon learn the truth regarding whether or not the two are in cahoots. And the follow-up to that story came out a couple of months later when the court decided, no, you don't get to find out any of the details. They can hide under national security, and they don't have to tell you 
at Jack's squat about their relationship with the NSA. So whatever relationship NSA and Google have, it's there, and uh, you can go and start your little court action to try to get that uh, information released to the public, but the court is going to say no, that you can't see what uh, the NSA is doing with Google. And, of course, there's a long history with Google and the CIA and accusations of various uh, uh, positions that they've been in together, but even regardless of that, of course, we know that every major internet company is involved with this. As I say, of course, Mark Zuckerberg, which we listened to earlier, he should know what he's talking about. We had uh, the story that broke earlier this, uh, sorry, late last year about Facebook tracking you even after you log out, etc., etc. It goes on and on. So once again, the question is, is online anonymity, anonymity even possible in this day and age? And the answer looks increasingly like a no. But we'll get more into this right after this break. Well, if you have nothing to hide, then you have nothing to fear, say a lot of the people out there when you even bring up the concept of privacy and anonymity and wanting to stay anonymous on the Internet. Well, what do you have to hide? It doesn't matter as long as you're not doing anything criminal, right? Well, that's always the refrain of the cowards who don't want to take a look at the uh, the encroaching tyranny and what this really indicates. But let's just take a little bit of a peek behind that facade and see what's really behind that and why we should be concerned about the loss of privacy. And it starts to add up to a picture that is so mind-bogglingly huge that it's difficult to wrap our minds around. But one tiny indication of the types of things that can be done with this data that we're pumping into the net every single day comes from a uh, news article from deadlinenews.co.uk that was just posted last week. Researchers say computer program can help predict Afghanistan war. Scottish researchers say they have developed a computer program which can help predict trouble spots in the war in Afghanistan. In a study involving Edinburgh University's computer science department, researchers used data from the WikiLeaks war logs to try and predict how the conflict would develop. They correctly found violence was on the increase in 2010, including in some of the more peaceful parts of the country. Well, I'll let you continue reading through that. Yes, this uh, University of Edinburgh researcher has managed to put these uh, this program together that will supposedly predict incidents of violence, or at least the general trend of violence in Afghanistan, using publicly available information. But this is kindergarten tinker toy type stuff compared to what the real big boys are playing with. And they're playing with something called the Sentient World Simulation, which not only already exists, but has already existed for the better part of a decade, although you've probably never heard of it or have heard very little about it, and it's already being used to predict all sorts of things. So let's listen to a short clip about the Sentient World Simulation. It is called the Sentient World Simulation. The program's aim, according to its creator, is to be a continuously running, continually updated mirror model of the real world that can be used to predict and evaluate future events and courses of action. In practical terms, that equates to a computer simulation of the entire planet complete with billions of nodes representing every person on the Earth. The project is based out of Purdue University in Indiana at the Synthetic Environment for Analysis and Simulations Laboratory. It is led by Alok Chattervedi, who in addition to heading up the Purdue Lab also makes the project commercially available via his private company, Simulex Inc., which boasts an array of government clients, including the Department of Defense and the Department of Justice, as well as private sector clients like Eli Lilly and Lockheed Martin. Chattervedi's ambition is to create reliable forecasts of future world events based on imagined scenarios. In order to do this, 
The simulations gobble up breaking news, census data, economic indicators, and climactic events in the real world, along with proprietary information such as military intelligence. Although not explicitly stated, the very type of data on digital communications and transactions now being gobbled up by the NSA, DHS, and other government agencies make ideal data for creating reliable models of every individual's habits, preferences, and behaviors that could be used to fine-tune these simulations and give more reliable results. Using this data, the SEAS Laboratory and its sentient world simulation offshoot are able to create detailed, operable, real-time simulations of at least 62 nations. The Iraq and Afghanistan computer models, according to a 2007 register report on the project, each has about 5 million individual nodes representing things such as hospitals, mosques, pipelines, and people. At the time of initial reports on the program five years ago, there were only 62 country-level simulations being run by the U.S. Department of Defense. These simulations grouped humans into composites, with 100 individuals acting as a single node. But already at that time, the U.S. Army had used the systems to create a one-to-one-level simulation of potential Army recruits. The ultimate aim would be to archive enough data on each individual to be able to make a computer model of everyone on the planet one that could be used to predict the behaviors and reactions of every single person in the event of various scenarios. The program can be used to predict what would happen in the event of a large-scale tsunami, for example, or how people would react during a bioterror attack. Businesses can use the models to predict how a new product would fare in the market, what kind of marketing plans would be most effective, or how best to streamline a company's organization. The original concept paper for the project was published in 2006, and in 2007 it was reported that both Homeland Security and the Defense Department were already using the system to simulate the American public's reaction to various crises. In the intervening five years, however, there has been almost no coverage at all of the sentient world simulation or its progress in achieving a model of the Earth. There is a very good chance that these types of systems are, at least for the moment, pure quackery. Computers are only as valuable as their programming, after all, and the algorithms required to accurately predict responses in chaotic systems with multiple dimly understood variables is orders of magnitude beyond what is currently possible. Or is it? One of the great ironies of our time, as Glenn Greenwald goes on to point out in his speech on the surveillance state, is that although we live in a time when it is possible for nebulous government agencies to know every detail of your life, from what you ate for breakfast to where you shopped last night to who your friends are, we are also living in an age of unprecedented ignorance about what our own governments are actually doing. All right, friends, that comes from a a, a video that I put out earlier this year for BoilingFrogsPost.com in the eye-opener report. It's called Sentient World Simulation, Meet Your DoD Clone. So I'll urge you to go and check out that whole report. But yes, total information awareness means exactly that. The, the, uh, The government wants to know everything you're doing and wants to put it in their little simulations so they can create the alternate reality, the cyberspace you. And if that doesn't send chills down your spine, you're not paying attention. If you'd like to get in on tonight's broadcast, we'll open up the phone lines now, 1-800-313-9443. We'll be back right after this. Well, we've discussed some of the indications that privacy is not what you think it might be on the internet, with some of the biggest companies on the net colluding actively with the authorities. 
We've discussed why this may be a problem and why we should be concerned about our data being scooped up wholesale by government agencies that are self-evidently and on the above board and over the counter using this data to construct simulations of the world, the better for of which to predict what you are going to do at any given time. But uh, still, there are people out there who want to believe that there is the possibility for anonymity if we just use the right technology. And there are uh, always people, when I bring up this topic, who will suggest various technologies to me. And I do agree there are ways to make it certainly more difficult, I suppose, to track what you're doing online and who you are. But I don't think that the idea that fundamentally, if the NSA or one of the big boys really wanted to know who you are, that they wouldn't be able to. And uh, we can just think about that conceptually for a moment by looking at some of the history of the Internet and how it came together and who controls it, which is a question that's getting more attention these days as that question is once again becoming up for play. And uh, we can turn to BBC News for more on this. Back in June of 2012, they had a, uh, a op-ed by Professor Alan Woodward of uh, the University of Surrey, who wrote a viewpoint, changing the way the internet is governed is risky. And it has a little bit of uh, some, well, some interesting nuggets in there about who really does control the internet and how it's run. So he starts off with some globalist uh worthy, Bilderberg-worthy, uh, wishy-washy, disgusting platitudes about uh, governance, which we all know is the new secret code word for government. And he starts by saying, Governance is the establishment and enforcement of norms, rules, and decision-making procedures. It is not the law as such, but rather a structure by which everyone agrees to abide, which can be captured locally by specific laws. One of the most successful examples we have of governance on a global scale is that which affects international waters, where a United Nations agency called the International Maritime Organization handles the treaties and conventions defining how everyone must behave. For the reason I'll come to shortly, I recently began asking people, who do you think should govern the internet? Most have replied that the internet should not be governed at all. It's fine as it is, and any suggestion that a US UN agency might adopt the role provide, provokes snorts of derision. I find myself having to explain that the internet is already governed, even though most think it is not. It's important to realize that without governance, the internet could not function. Consider something as simple as web names and addresses. In order to avoid two different websites having the same name, there is an organization called the International Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, ICANN, which decides on who may use a name, although this is delegated down to regional organizations. At present... At present, the governance of the internet is effectively done by multiple stakeholders. What is less well appreciated is that the final approval on much of what is decided by these organizations is formally within the gift of the United States Department of Commerce. This fact has remained relatively low profile as the Department of Commerce adopted an arm's length relationship with the stakeholder organizations. However, the formality of the power structure was thrown into stark relief when the U.S. government under George W. Bush intervened, intervened directly on the subject of .xxx domain names and then moved responsibility for certain naming from the I Internet Assigned Numbers Authority to ICANN. The fact that the U.S. government ultimately controls the Internet is something that many find an anachronism when the Internet is a global phenomenon and one which many countries' economies are becoming increasingly reliant upon. And that article goes on from there, but yes, there is uh, this debate which has been raging for a decade now at least and is gaining steam right at the moment as an important conference is coming up on this subject of who is and who should control the Internet. 
and we can also pick this up from BBC News just yesterday, uh, U.S. resists control of Internet passing to U.N. agency. The U.S. has confirmed it would resist efforts to put the Internet under the control of the United Nations. At present, several nonprofit U.S. bodies oversee the net's technical specifications and domain name system. They operate at arm's length from the U.S. government, but officially under the remit of its Department of Commerce. There has been speculation that other nations will push for a change this year, but they cannot force the U.S. to comply. The U.S. has set out its position in documents filed with the International Telecommunications Union, the U.N. agency responsible for encouraging the development of communications technology. Etc., etc. It goes on from there, but yes, the international community is hoping that they can wrest control of the uh, the underlying governance structures of the internet uh, to put in the hands of the UN, the United Nations, that loving globalist body in which you and I have no say whatsoever. Oh, doesn't that sound like a wonderful way of running our world? Well, yes, I guess... Uh, is it better the devil you know than the devil you don't? Either way, the point is that it's the devil controlling the system. So uh, one has to be uh, aware of the fact that the very backbone infrastructure and the governance structures which underlie that infrastructure are all controlled by the U.S. government, were set up by the U.S. Department of Defense. There is nothing really that goes on on the Internet that can't be tapped. And let's uh, let's explore that in a little bit more technical detail before we go to your phone calls. Uh, we have an article about the one piece of technology everyone wants to always email me about, Tor. And uh, this is, for people who don't know, a, a type of program that supposedly allows you to have basic, basically more or less an anonymity on the internet because of the way it routes your internet traffic through multiple nodes. It basically makes it impossible to track, or so you would like to think. But I, I like to turn back to this Cryptogon.com article, which I really suggest people go and read in its entirety, especially for the tech tech-inclined people out there, because it goes into some great degree of detail about this. It's called High Traffic Colluding Tor Routers in Washington, D.C., and the Ugly Truth About Online Anonymity. And it says, so you want to be anonymous in a world that was thought up by the U.S. Department of Defense? Most computer users don't have what it takes in terms of technical skills or discipline to pull it off. I'm sorry if that sounds harsh, but it's absolutely true. I'm not claiming to be any kind of expert at all. If knowledge of computers and networks represented all the grains of sand on a beach, I'd say that I was familiar with about five of those grains of sand. I would like to hear from people who know more than me about any flaws in this information. A long time ago, as a sort of theoretical challenge to myself, I tried to define a reliable protocol for remaining anonymous online. As you might already know, I studied information warfare in college. Once again, this is from Cryptogon.com. This is not myself. As, uh, as you may already know, I studied information warfare in college, and I did several years of time in corporate IT environments. I knew about the types of surveillance and control that are possible at the client, server, and network levels. I looked at the challenge as all IT people look at all IT-related challenges. Assume the absolute worst. I went even further with this. I made irrationally negative assumptions. I assumed that everything I did online was compromised. I assumed the worst tinfoil nightmares about commercial operating systems. I assumed that my ISP was a subsidiary of the NSA, etc. Got the idea? Let's look at each level in a bit more detail. Well, from that point, he gets into that detail, talking about servers as potential honeypots, networks, if you feel like you're being watched, it's because you are, 
clients, NSA side projects, and countermeasures across the internet using an open wireless network, preferably from great distance. And it does talk about some of the uh, the ideas of, that people use to, to get around some of this, but it goes eventually to the concept of Tor, uh, way down at the bottom of the article, and it just has a little bit of a news update that was making news in 2007. A group of nine Tor routers are functioning overtly or indirectly as Tor exit nodes have been observed colluding on the public Tor network. Due to the sheer amount of traffic apparently passing through this collusion network, consolidation and analysis of exit node traffic is only one of several forms of anonymity attacks made more feasible. Hence, these nine routers appear to pose a significant anonymity threat to users of the public Tor network. And there's a link to a Reddit thread about this story and some of the things that uh, the users have uncovered about those connections absolutely incredible if i once again if you believe in tor i really suggest you read this article and you read that reddit thread and uh, you find out about these uh, washington dc tor routers that were colluding and uh, although we don't exactly know we couldn't can't say for for definitively sure who owns those routers or what they're doing but it seems like they would be able to compromise anonymity at the very least at any rate, having said all of that, we've got some callers lined up uh, for uh, on the line, so let's try to get to your calls. We'll try to squeeze them all in here. So let's go uh, first to Chris in Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Chris, thanks for joining us tonight. Why, good evening, Mr. Corbett. What a distinct pleasure to speak with you again. Well, thank you for joining us. What's on your mind? Well, you mentioned earlier that the... Uh, Department of Homeland Security, or DOD, was claiming that this was a 1986 uh, concept. I would remind you, as I know you well know, are familiar with the treaties of silent weapons for quiet wars from the 1940s, where this exact scenario was recommended, lusted for, and sought after by the global extremists who concocted this purported economic scheme of global control and lusted for the Internet, the worldwide spider's web, the fisherman's net of intel gathering, which we see consummated in its lustful exigency today under the fusion centers, Echelon, SatNet, and any other computerized programs that any of us enjoy for our want of use of 24 7 365 internet communication, keeping our thumbs on the pulse just like they wanted to keep their thumbs on the pulse of the world so that they would know the temperature, the nature of the perspective of the humans on the planet so they would know when to pull the switch. Unfortunately, I think you're right. In fact, it could even go further back than that. You could look at H.G. Wells and his concept of the world brain. We can go forward in time, look at Brzezinski writing about the age of the technotronic era, etc., etc. They have definitely been writing about this and lusting after it for decades and decades now, and it is coming to fruition. And as I've been outlining, outlining tonight, it's pretty much the way they wanted it. It's a net that's there to ensnare us all. And the real question is how to avoid the, uh, the or how to slip out of the holes of that net, I suppose. Well, I would suggest that maybe two-wire phone systems might be. You may be able to speak one-on-one with somebody with some hope that the secret would stay within the two, but no guarantees are implied. As I understand, if there are four or five of you that are 
together speaking with one another, you can bet that one is a COINTELPRO agent seeking information to report on about the others there. Unfortunately so, and as I was going through on the episode uh, on the Friday night broadcast last week, there's even the mind control, mind reading technologies that uh, the DHS and DARPA and all of them are trying to roll out now, which I think at this point are probably a lot of quackery, but uh, there is always the possibility that they will be able to perfect that, and in the future, perhaps there will be no such things as secrets even within our own head. So on that cheery note, Owen, uh, sorry, Chris, thank you for that. Uh, Let's move along to Owen in Florida. Owen, thanks for calling in tonight. Hello? Yes, hello, Owen. You're on the air. Okay, well, I don't really know where to begin other than to at least say that you're doing an excellent job and you're on to a lot so far. Since you mentioned Skype, I figured I would mention uh, a very interesting article that you might be interested in, one might be interested in. It was called Uncovering Spoken Phonemes and Encrypted Voice Over IP. And basically what this uh, this academic research project does that shows that Skype for a long time has been leaking data through its unpadded packets packets so that you know to the point that that spoken phonemes could can be intercepted and you can basically piece together full conversation piece the the essential elements of conversations and now the fact that the NSA offered up much funny while this was was, was occurring is very dubious, in my opinion, and I've always wondered why you know something as sophisticated as the NSA would would be so interested in something that's already gaping. Then I also thought I would mention a couple of other things if, if there's time. Uh, we've um, got a couple more callers, so if you can speed it up, that's fine. Well, there's the, the, the headline that you can search for in quotes as Skype bug gives its hackers access to Mac OS. Uh, machines, OSX machines, and there's, um, well, there's a lot of stuff out there, but... Okay, can you can you repeat the, the title of the first article again? Well, it was a, an article by the Register, that was published by the Register, it was called a Skype Bug Gives Attackers Access to Mac OS X Machines. You could probably find it just typing in, in that to a search engine. And I... You know, I, I could keep going on. I, I, I actually have a little quote for Linux uh, forums where, you know, they, it's not the forums, but the, the, the documentation where they're telling you how to install Skype. And to quote that, there are a couple of reasons why you might want to restrict Skype's access to your computer. The center is disguised against decompiling, so no one is still able to reproduce what it really does. It produces encrypted traffic, in, encrypted traffic, even when you are actively using Skype. Most likely to its, you know, due to its its peer-to-peer kind mm-hmm. of sure. But uh, regarding Tor as well, as I, I've personally watched uh, some of my Tor traffic producing Washington nodes when I was monitoring my traffic, so. I've seen that with my own eyes. It happens, unfortunately. All right, Owen, we're going to have to leave it there. We've got a couple more callers on the line, but I will check into those articles, so thank you for that. And let's head over to Rob in Minnesota. Rob, thanks for joining us on the line tonight. Hi, James. Uh, Like everybody else, I really appreciate your work and everything, and uh, two thumbs up on your uh, 9-11 conspiracy theory. Uh, I think that's helped me wake up a few people with their, uh, just because it's so absurd, you know, 
it's a it's a great uh, you very well done. Uh, am I on? <laughs> you are, you are, and thank oh, you for okay. that. Well, I I can't really take credit because the story they came up with is so absurd that uh, it makes fun of itself, really. Yeah, you laid it out so beautifully, though, that it uh, it really, you know, people just really have to do a double take. You know, the people that say, ah, you're a conspiracy theory, you're nuts, get away from me. But that's not the reason I called. I just had to bring that up because uh, that was brilliant. And uh, I can't say I'm an expert at anything. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a factory floor worker, and sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, from the Hobbit movies or the books, uh, I feel like one of the trolls that's helping clear-cut the forest to feed the uh, furnace that's uh, building the the New World Order's war machine here. Uh, I work for a uh, contract, uh, electronics contract manufacturer. We don't have any of our own products, but we build uh, circuit boards for many, many uh, places. And so we built circuit boards for Cray, and I personally have tested uh, a lot of the, you know, the the boards that uh, went into uh, the Jaguar, which had the uh, the world uh, record until the newest machine we're building for IBM, called the Blue Gene, uh, just came out, and it is holding a new record. Uh, and it's interesting. I'm calling because. Uh, uh, this is a uh, uh, a bunch of smaller uh, computer boards that go onto a, a larger composite motherboard, and that larger composite motherboard is called a node. And uh, then there are many, many nodes that go in to make up uh, the supercomputer. It's just massively uh, parallel uh, processing. Very interesting. We'll have to leave it there. We're coming up to the break, but uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio on the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and here we are in the final few minutes of tonight's broadcast, just wrapping things up here on the topic of online anonymity. And we have uh, another caller waiting on the line, so let's just get to him before the end of the broadcast. Charles in South Carolina, thank you for calling in tonight, and uh, what's on your mind? I've been a huge fan of you for a long time. I've seen your movie. I grew up in New York City. My father was basically estranged from me. He died last week. He was in construction. And I'm I sorry to, to hear that. This, but he was one of the people that helped blow up the towers. He chose me. He showed me the paperwork of how they planned to do it, and I've inherited over one million dollars from his death. And he just was a simple man. That's a pretty remarkable claim. How can I get this information to you? Like, I have I, a contact like, form on my website if you want to send any information there. I'm always open to anything from anyone there. That's CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. Just send it there through the contact. I have the evidence that they blew up the towers. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it, so by all means, send it in. And for anyone else out there with any information, I'm always open to receiving it. And unfortunately, uh, j- just like uh, unlike WikiLeaks, I can't provide anyone any uh, guarantee of their anonymity because, of course, that is a pipe dream. As John Young was talking be... about in 2010 when I had him on the broadcast and we were talking about WikiLeaks, he said that's one of the things that he found 
disreputable about the organization was that they claimed to be able to protect online whistleblowers' identities. But of course, we saw that they are not able to do that with Bradley Manning. So Charles, I do appreciate that. Please send the information in. I will take a look at it. And for anyone else out there with information as well. Well, just finally tonight on the broadcast, I wanted to end on something of a positive note, because it's been a pretty negative episode, I suppose, by trying to dispel the myth of online anonymity but uh but there is i think something there are things that people can do to protect themselves so they at least are not more vulnerable they can be a little bit less vulnerable to this but as i say i think underlying all of this if the nsa or the big boys want to know who you are there's probably nothing you can do about it but this is not meant to be a type of just roll over play dead give up don't do anything don't say anything don't be friends with people because you might they might be agents it's not meant to be that type of message in fact it's meant to be the exact opposite because there comes a point at which when the forces are arrayed against you and things are overwhelming and there's so much to lose that you have nothing left to lose that we are in a state where unfortunately the entire infrastructure of our entire communications grid has been built with the express purpose of having backdoors in order to spy on you what do you have left to lose why on earth would you hold back from your real opinions in at this point I, certainly i understand there's a lot of people out there that that get scared of this type of thing but obviously i'm out here with my real name telling it like it is because once again we are not the criminals the ones who are doing these acts the ones who are violating people's fundamental rights they are the criminals so we have to speak up we have to be strong we have to be loud about what's going on and not accept what they are trying to do which is browbeat us into submission so that's it for tonight. Thank you once again for joining us tonight on Corbett Report Radio. I'm, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I am independent alternative media, so I am supported by you out there. Please consider signing up for my newsletter. The next edition goes out tomorrow, that's Saturday, and it will be about uh, China and uh, its, uh, its role in Africa and what's going on there. Also, I will uh, have a... a uh, I will have a, a subscriber-only video that will be coming out in, in that this edition of the newsletter, so it's a good time to sign up. Also, you can support me by buying my DVDs. Next week on the program, we're going to have Eric Dreitzer, we're going to have Dan Dix, uh, others to be decided. Of course, James Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com. It'll be another great week of transmissions. I hope you join me then. So until then, thank you all for listening, and take care. <laughs>